Let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. As I said during the reading, it is a chapter of one of the most tragic incidents in the history of the nation of Israel, and particularly one family in that nation, the family of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. It reminds me of the story of the judge that was presiding over a courtroom in the United States. And there was a young man standing there in the dock as a defendant. And after the judge had heard the evidence and pronounced the sentence, he thought to himself, I have a vague recollection of who that person is. He said to the young man as he had passed sentence, he said, is your father judge so-and-so, the great legal scholar? The young man said, yes, that's my father. The judge looked at him and he said, how is it that someone coming from a family like yours has ended up in this terrible situation and facing this terrible sentence of judgment? The young man said to him, well, he says, it's true, my father was one of the most famous legal scholars of his day, wrote the most famous book on criminal law, used all over the world by law students. But he said, when I was a boy growing up in my father's home, every time I wanted to talk to him, he always said, not now. I'm too busy. The old judge looked at that young man as he was led away to spend the rest of his life in jail. He shook his head and he said, sadly, your father finished the book, but he lost the boy. How true that is. Finished the book, but he lost the boy. And Eli, when he heard the news of the death of his two sons, the loss of the ark, said, I've lost everything. It's not worth living anymore. This time in the history of the nation of Israel, the leadership of the nation was in a terrible crisis. Eli was an old, old man, almost 100 years of age, blind physically, not in good health, overweight, the Bible says. Not only was he physically in trouble, but spiritually he was backslidden. Lost control of his sons. And seemingly unwilling and unable to deal with them. And below Eli, this old, old man, the high priest. Coming as his successors. In line to take over. In fact, they had already pushed their way in to taking over much of the leadership was two of the sons of the devil, Hophni 
and Phineas. That's how the Bible described them, sons of Belial. So the nation's in trouble. Eli's family's in trouble. Because the old man, who is a believer, he's about to die. He's done. And the two to take over from him are from the pit of hell, Hophni and Phineas. And if that wasn't bad enough, God had stopped talking to this nation. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. In other words, God had ceased to talk to this people, this nation. They were in deep trouble. Their rebellion and their sin had got so far from the leadership of the nation, the spiritual leadership, it had infected all of that society. It's no wonder it, we read in the book of Judges that every man did what was right in his own eyes or every woman did what was right in her eyes. Kind of like the days we're living in, isn't it? Everybody just does what they like. They don't care. Used to be if you knock the door and talk to people, you may even get a respectful audience, even if they didn't agree with you. But not anymore. People will blank you or outwardly despise you and the message that you preach. And God had been watching what was going on in this nation. One of the things about God which is different from us is God not only saw what was going on and was angered by what was going on, but unlike us, God has the ability to act on his anger. And he's going to step in now. And he's going to deal with this nation. And in particular, deal with the root of the poison in the family of Eli. And this chapter reveals a number of things about God, about who God is, and about how God works. And I want you just to see a number of very simple truths this evening from 1 Samuel chapter 4. You can write them down if you like. And here's the first one. God is a God who judges sin. Underline that in your own mind, in your own heart, in your own life. It says this in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. What a statement. Canst not look upon iniquity. Remember when Isaiah saw the throne of God, what did he hear? The words to describe God. Holy, holy, holy. That's God. He's a God who by definition is a holy God. A God who hates sin. A God who will judge sin. And in this story of 1 Samuel chapter 4, it's very easy to get caught up in the drama and the tragedies of the family relationships and the bloodshed. 
and miss the great lesson that God is the God who judges sin. That's what's really going on in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Apostle Paul said this, and some of you will know this verse from memory. Maybe you learned it as a child. He said this in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, Be not deceived. Be not deceived. In other words, Paul says, don't kid yourself. The young people like to use an expression, don't they? Wake up and smell the coffee. Well, that's what Paul's saying. Wake up. Don't kid yourself. And what's the lesson Paul goes on to say? Be not deceived. For whatsoever, or he says this, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man or a woman soweth, that shall he also reap. Now we're in an agricultural community here, aren't we, this evening? And everybody here understands what a farmer does. And you understand how a farmer works and how farming works. That when you sow potatoes, and I saw a field of potatoes as I was coming here this morning. Somewhere between, I think it was Guilford and here. Well, if you sow potatoes in your field, you don't reap apples, all right? What do you ever, whatever seed you put in will come out the other side when the harvest comes. And Paul says, don't kid yourself. Whatever seeds you sow of sin in your life, there'll come a harvest. And it'll come to fruition. And there'll be a reaping. And you know, the devil has been telling people from the very beginning of time that there's no judgment for sin. It's the oldest lie in history. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, well, let's just look at it. For it's always worth looking at these old stories. And if you go to Genesis chapter 3, you'll discover Satan slithered into the garden. And he began to talk to Eve. And of course, the story is very familiar. In fact, the story is very personal for us. Because this is our great, 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 great grandmother, Eve, for everyone in this room, one of our relatives. And he said to, to her, verse 1, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He came as a friend, just a conversation, just asked a question. Has God said? Has God put any limitations on your enjoyment here? Are you unhappy in any way with what God has said or done in your life, Eve? And Eve enters into the conversation. Verse 2, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now, I could take time to go through that statement and see what she left out. How God said you can eat freely. Oh, she started to forget that in the conversation. But she said in verse 3, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. Well, God hadn't said that at all. 
she started to add to God's word. She started to increase in her own mind the severity of God. And then she said, lest ye die. God hadn't said that at all. It's not lest ye die. It's not a possibility. God had said you will die if you eat of that free. But just look at what the serpent says in verse 4. Because that's what I want to, to get you here. To see. As soon as she said that. Satan jumped in. Saw his moment. And he said. And the serpent said. Unto the woman. Ye shall not. Surely die. In other words. You can sin. And get away with it. There's no consequence. Like God had said in chapter 2. Thou shalt surely die. In fact if you look at the verse. In chapter 2. When God said in verse 17. The day that thou eatest her off. Thou shalt surely die. And if you have a little marginal Bible. And the King James translation really can't bring it out because the Hebrew is a different language, a different type of structure. But literally the Hebrew says this, dying thou shalt die. That's a very difficult thing to translate. So the King James translator says, translated as thou shalt surely die, which really gives the sense of what it means in the Hebrew. But it's a, the Hebrew is much more graphic. It's dying thou shalt die. No, no question, God says. The day that you eat of it, you'll die. And the old serpent came into the Garden of Eden and he said, Well, he didn't even say to her, You might not die. Oh no, Satan says, Thou shalt not die. It's a consequence free choice, Eve. God can't control you. God can't judge you. God can't touch you. And you know he's been telling that lie for thousands of years, isn't he? All around Market Hill tonight, there are people who are being drawn into all kinds of sins in their minds, in their hearts, in their actions. And Satan is telling them, go ahead. There's no judgment coming. There's no consequence for your sin. God can't see it. In fact, there isn't even a God. That's how they're living their lives. And they think that they can get away with it. And Paul summed it up so straight in Galatians 6 and 7 when he said, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. God's not like you and I. You can't play games with him. He's not a fool. He sees everything. Knows everything. Remembers everything. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And you know, Eli played the fool with God. You read the story of the chapters leading up to this chapter. How Eli was warned about his sons. How Eli understood what his sons had done. And yet he refused to deal with it. One, this chapter is a chapter where God says, enough is enough, Eli. But then, 
the sons of Eli thought the same. They sinned in the temple. They stole the sacrifices. They abused the sacrifices. They engaged in all kinds of immoral behavior in the temple grounds or the tabernacle grounds as it was then. And no lightning came down and struck them. No fire consumed them like Nadab and Abihu were consumed with the fire. And it seemed that they had got away with it. That God was indifferent or couldn't care less. But this chapter tells us God saw it. God was angry with it. And then God will deal with it. But then we have to notice something else and underline this statement as well. These are just very simple statements. Number one, God is a God who judges sin. But then notice this. Number two, God judges sin in his time. In his time. Well, that's so important. As I said earlier, Eli and his sons had got away with it or had seemed to have got away with it. In fact, Eli was warned about his sons when Samuel was just a young boy. And now Samuel is a grown man. So this had been going on for years and years and years. And Hophni and Phinehas had been warned of their sin for years and years and years. And it seemed that God had forgotten. God had overlooked. But this 1 Samuel chapter 4 is a chapter that tells us God hadn't forgotten. God hadn't overlooked. But God was going to deal with it in his time. And in his way. And in his place of judgment. So that everybody could see this is the finger of God. And let me say this to you. Sometimes it is frustrating when we look around the world and we think, why doesn't God deal with this? Why doesn't God judge this particular person? Those of us who grew up during the Troubles can look around and see wicked men who committed some of the most vile deeds strutting the streets of this land. Some of them even boasting in it, celebrating it, writing books about it. And we say, where's God? Has he not seen it? God says to you and I, I saw it. I'm angered with it. And I'll deal with it. But in my time. My place. Shall not the judge of the earth. Do right. Oh absolutely he will. In his place. In his time. And some people are judged instantly. But for others God delays his judgment. For his own reasons. And his own purpose. King David. Committed adultery with a woman. Then had her husband murdered. For nine months, nine months, he seemed to have gotten away with it, didn't he? She was about, she had just given birth to that child. David thought he had covered it up so well. 
Maybe he even thought to himself, I'm the sweet psalmist. I'm God's favorite. And God's not going to deal with me the way he deals with ordinary people. Nine months later, a knock comes to his door. And then walks a man, an old friend, who had often been used to come and give good news to David, called Nathan the prophet. This time Nathan didn't come with good news. He came up to David and he looked David in the eye. Began to tell him a story, a parable, of a rich man and a poor man and a little lamb. David, he was so caught up in the story, blinded in his own self-righteousness, blinded to the judgment of God, that he said to Nathan, the man who did it, you'll die. In fact, the man hadn't, if the man was only a, a person in the story, but it wasn't a capital offense. It's taking another man's lamb. That wouldn't have got you the death sentence in God's law. But David's so full of self-righteousness, he'll die. And he says he'll restore fourfold to that poor man. And then old wee Nathan just looked at David and he says, Thou art the man. The one in the story is you. It's you. And David's world collapsed. Because he suddenly realized... Hadn't got away with it. Hadn't got away with it. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuse. No covering up. No blaming anybody else. David says, God has seen my sin. God's judged me. I'm guilty. Of course, David had to pay a price. There was consequences that flowed because David lost four of his sons. Just as he said, fourfold. God brought that judgment upon him and Adonijah and Amnon and Absalom and the newly born son all lost their lives. And David's home, fourfold he paid. Just as he, he himself said, it's worthy of fourfold judgment. God took him at his word. And all kinds of sins were multiplied and sorrow in David's family because of his sin and his example. Noah preached for 120 years and not a drop of rain fell. And he lived in the worst generation of human history when men were so corrupt that every imagination and thought and intent was evil continually. You know what that means? It means that from the moment they woke up to the moment they fell asleep, all over this world, men just spent their lives consumed with the thought of sin, pursuing, inventing new ways to sin. Now remember, these people lived seven, eight, nine hundred years. And they would have invented all kinds of perverted, twisted ways to sin. They pursued it to the very depths. That's the generation that Noah lived. The worst ever. Yet God allowed the judgment. To be delayed for 120 years. And even when Noah went into the ark. And the door was closed. 
God didn't send a raindrop for another seven days. Seven more days of grace. Seven more days of delay until the judgment came. But it came. And here's the great statement. God's delay is not God's denial. It's not God's denial of your sin or the sins of anyone else. You know, there's a great verse in the book of Hebrews. Listen to what it says. It says, for it is appointed unto man once to die but after this the judgment and you know if you have a phone sometimes you're like me you like to put appointments on the calendar of your phone I know there are people who like to write it down perhaps I should do that because one day my phone might just go wonky But generally when I get a booking or an engagement, the first thing I do, I put it into the phone, into the calendar. And seven days or one day or one hour before the appointment is due, the phone will flash, the calendar will flash to say, you've got this appointment. It's in your calendar. It's fixed. You have to go. And you know, sometimes on earth... There are appointments we just don't want to go to. And we see it and it says, go to the dentist. (laughs) I'll maybe give that one a miss. Or think of an excuse to avoid going to that one. And somehow we find a way to wangle out of it. Well, you know, in a sense, God has a calendar. And in his calendar, his divine, eternal calendar, there are three appointments for your life. And they're fixed appointments. And they're appointments that can't be avoided, can't be changed, can't be altered in any way by you. Do you know those three appointments are? The first one is the date of your birth in God's calendar fixed can't be changed you've already experienced that one the second one hebrews tells us is the date of your death it is appointed unto man notice how the expression the greek's very graphic it is appointed it's done by someone else god it's appointed unto man once to die. There's the second appointment in God's calendar that you can't change. But then there's a third appointment, and this is often overlooked because it says this in the same verse It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the second appointment, there's a third one coming the judgment. The judgment. Three appointments. Fixed in God's eternal calendar for you and for me. And that's why, as I say, the second point of this chapter is God not only judges sin, but he judges sin in his time, in his calendar, not yours, in his way. But then thirdly and finally, 
I know it's a hot evening, so I'm going to be quick. So you don't complain when you leave. That I was too long. The third point is simply this. God judges sin perfectly. Perfectly. You know, sometimes when we read of people being brought before the court system who has committed a crime, maybe that we're personally involved with in terms of something's happened to our family or some of our neighbors. And we say, that's good. That person has been arrested. They're now before the courts. And then we hear they've been tried and found guilty. And we say, good, they deserve it. Justice is now being served. And then we listen a little further to the news or read the newspaper a little longer and we see the sentence. Suspended sentence. Community service order. Or in the case of this country, released early. Ho, 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 ho. And the blood boils, doesn't it? And we say, that's not justice. That man uh, has done a terrible thing. And it's as if he's got away with it. Well, he or she may have got away with it on earth. But not in heaven. Not in eternity. And God not only judges sin. And he judges it in his time. But he judges it perfectly. And if you read this story so carefully, you can see the perfection of how God deals with Hophni and Phinehas in such a public way. In one day, just wipes them off the face of the earth. And then old Eli, when he gets the news, falls down dead. And in the space of a few hours, God has cleaned up the spiritual leadership of this nation. And he's done it in a way where everybody can see this is the finger of God. Of course, the judgment doesn't end there because Hophni and Phinehas have the the greater judgment to come next. God made no mistake that day. In his time and in his way, he dealt with the sins of that nation and thousands of others perished in their sins. Because of their rejection of God. Of Israelite soldiers. But I don't want to finish tonight. Simply on the note of. Hopelessness. And negativity. Because if you come to the end. Of 1 Samuel chapter 4. The wife of Phineas Is heavy with child. And as the labor pains begin. Somewhat prematurely. She gives birth. We're told that the birth, the premature birth, brings upon her death. And as she's dying, they bring the boy to her, just born. They said, here's your son. She looks at that boy. And she says, Ichabod. Meaning departed. Or the glory is departed. And she says, call him Ichabod. 
Because God has judged this nation and judged this family. And he has left us. But you know, in one sense that was true. That God had judged them. God had left them. But in a greater sense it wasn't true at all. God hadn't left them. In fact, if you read on in the book of Samuel, you'll discover that the death of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli simply opened the door to a new leader to lead this nation. And this new leader was of a different character, a different spiritual character than Eli and particularly Hophni and Phinehas. His name was Samuel. And he would become not just a great prophet and priest. He'd become one of the greatest prophets and priests of the nation of Israel. And he would bring this nation back to God by his example and by his preaching. And in First Samuel chapter 7, God will use this man to spark a great revival of true religion and true faith in this nation. And you know, Samuel, of course, leads on to another person. Because one day God will send the old man, Samuel, down to Bethlehem. He says, I've got a job for you, Samuel. I want you to go down there. There's a little fellow there. And he's going to be the greatest king of this nation. And he's a man after mine own heart. He's called David. You're to anoint him as the new king. The next king. Israel's greatest king. And of course from David would run a line. All the way through history. To a stable in Bethlehem. And there would be born the saviour of the world. The prince of peace. The king of kings. The one who can truly forgive all sins. So yes. The chapter ends with Ichabod. But it doesn't end there. Because the darkest moment becomes the greatest moment. When God now begins to work. In his time and in his way. Old John Wesley used to say, God buries the workmen, but never the work. Isn't that right? The Lord Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. He didn't say, you'll build it. We tend to forget that. He didn't say, I will build your church. We tend to forget that too. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not. They'll try, he said. But they shall not prevail against it. You know the greatest days for the church, for the work of God, is yet to come. You say, that's impossible. The Bible says it is. The Bible says the greatest revival in the history of this world is yet future. You say, where does it say that? Well, when you go home tonight, you go to a little book 
penultimate book of the Old Testament, Zechariah. You read chapter 12 and 13 and 14. Particularly verse 2 of Zechariah chapter 12. Verse 10, sorry, of Zechariah chapter 10. It's 12. And it tells us that in a time to come, God is going to open the windows of heaven and pour out the spirit of grace and supplication on the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. It says he's going to lift the veil from their eyes. And the whole nation as a people will look upon the one whom they have pierced, the Messiah, and cry for him. Mourn! You read on chapter 13 and 14. It says Christ will return and his feet will touch the Mount of Olives and he'll deliver the Jewish people. And the earth, it says, will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea in that day. That's what's going to happen. It's in the future. God hasn't forgotten this planet. He'll always have a people. Always have a work. You're part of it here in Market Hill. Make sure you do your work. You can't save the world. You can't reach the world, but you can reach Market Hill. That's your task. That's your opportunity. That's your God-given place of service. And finally, let me say this. If you're a sinner here or a backslider, the same message is true for you as it was for Hophni and Phineas and Eli. God sees your sin. God is angered with your sin. God is going to judge your sin. And he's going to judge it in his time and perfectly in his way. You won't get away with one. But the good news is this. Tonight, you're on the right side of eternity. You've only had the first appointment. Remember the three appointments? The date of your birth. The other two are still future. The date of your death and the date of God's judgment. You know what the Bible says? Today is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Today is your last window, last hope of forgiveness. You know, this morning as I was coming down the road from Guilford to Tandragee along that long stretch past the football club there, Tandragee Football Club, it's a very long, long, maybe a mile long stretch. A motorbike went past me. <clears throat> Probably doing a hundred mile an hour. But this evening as I was coming down the same road, the police had blocked off part of the road. And there were two motorbikes lying smashed to pieces on the ground. Two riders who got on the motorbike today with big plans, ambitions, didn't think that today would be the last ride on that bike. And you know, 
No man knoweth, the Bible says, what a day will bring forth for you or for me. None of us can count on tomorrow. Today is the day of forgiveness and of salvation. Don't miss the boat. You might be too late tomorrow.